Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. All right, well, thank you for uh, coming to this event. It's an honor to share the stage with, with uh, John Harris and, and uh, Russell Fuller. It's, um, it's also my first time in Wisconsin. It's beautiful here. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, after publishing this book, I've been to many places. And uh, America is, is a very diverse and beautiful place. And this just adds to my impression of that. So uh, thank you for being here again. Um, yeah, as, as John said, I did... I did come out with this book, um, I want to say years in the making, I guess, but there it is. And uh, so today, uh, I want to talk uh, about the importance of, of great men in light of, uh, of Reformed theology and Reformed thought. So it's the idea of the, of the great man. Uh, you probably have heard something like that before, that I want to just kind of expand and talk a little bit more about that. And... Uh, and if you have any questions, like John said, please write those down. We'll try to address those um, uh, later. But I want to start off with a quote by a French intellectual. I know starting with a French quote is probably not a good idea. But th this guy was one of the good ones in, in my estimation. Um, Ernest Renan, uh, he said, Great men, glory, I mean the genuine kind. This is the capital stock upon which one bases a national idea. So the great man is the capital stock upon which one bases a national idea. The idea being that if we have a nation, part of that, of thinking about what the nation is, who we are in relation to the nation, our attachment to it is in part, not only, but is in part the history of the great people that did great works on behalf and for that nation. And so as Americans, who would you say is one of the, the greatest? Someone can, starts with a W, not Wolf. Washington, yes, thank you. It's Washington, George Washington, my personal favorite uh, founding father. Um, so, uh, well, before I get to Washington, so what, what is a, a great man, just in general, not just a, po a political, I feel like I'm giving a lecture asking questions in a school, uh, but, but um, it's, a, it's a director, it's a sort of director of men. Uh, so you can think of a military officer a military officer is someone who directs people into battle, directs them to actions as a group uh, to do um, great things. They themselves are also uh, men of action. Um, so a great men can be military leaders, they can be uh, political leaders, they can be both. They can be great writers, uh, but whatever it is that this great man is someone who can shape and direct people in action. Um, and then they leave a legacy within those people, that people, to uh, give people a positive regard and understanding of who they are as a people. So I brought up George Washington because he truly was uh, the, the, uh, the greatest of the, of the great. 
um, within, um, I think, in, in American history. He's, he was a military leader, of course, also later a political leader. He was a founding father. He literally chaired, he was the, the chairman of the federal convention that led to our Constitution. He didn't say much, but that didn't matter because what, what was he? He was this tall, great man who could uh, set the tone with his own gravitas and presence for the very importance uh, of, that, uh, of that event. Um, years after his death, decades after his death, Holmes would have um, images of George Washington not, not on their private study or in their library, but in their living room. So this was a very common American practice decades after his death to have that, uh, have his image in the living room. So he continued on as this great man. In, in his farewell address, in his, so he, he, was, he, he set the tradition until FDR broke it of only having two terms as president. Um, but in his farewell address, before he said, I'm done, it's been 30 years, I'm retiring finally. He said, uh, he was basically subtly saying, in my, in my interpretation, I've held this thing together, now you guys have to hold it together. He said, we have common sentiments, common religion, we have common struggles. I know you were a, a set of squabbling colonies and then states under the, uh, under the um, Articles Confederation. Now you're one great nation. You're one people. Now I'm retiring. You, you deal with it, um, and you hold it together. I'm no longer going to be that man. But it was the man, in my view, Washington, that held the, the country together. Uh, and so this is not a lecture about Washington, even though I wouldn't mind that. Uh, but we, have, we can think of other men as well. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, FDR, you may have different opinions about these people. Nevertheless, they still were, had this great man uh, kind of persona. FDR is interesting because he, of course, could not, could not walk and yet still led a World War II uh, and, and, and as president. So it doesn't, so the physical presence is not necessarily um, matter as much. But you have other, I mean, other founders, famous founders. You have Solon of Athens, you have Lycurgus of, um, of uh, Sparta, you have Romulus of Rome, you have Madison, Adams, all these people. So these are the great men, and they inspire and unite a people and, and create a heritage. <laughs> Um, now, nowadays, if you think of what the sort of people we consider great, uh, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's people who are largely passive. It's people who happen upon a certain identity and then assert that identity in public. And that identity is in praised and they are elevated. Uh, there, there was recently a, I saw Biden was asked a question by, I guess, a journalist. And she said something to the effect of some, someone I know uh, told me that a, a, a trans kid was is scared and wants to leave the country. And what did Biden say? He said, well, you know, grow up or something, or I don't know. Well, he, he didn't say, he said, oh, give me the phone number and I'll give that kid a call and said everything will be okay. Sounds very nice, but it was an elevation of a certain identity. Someone claimed to be scared, and then that person was elevated as being, in a way, worthy of a call from the president to say everything will be okay, I support you. Uh, so the people who make the loudest noise have the biggest outrage. People who are simply just victims of injustice or perceived injustice are elevated as great and get statues in their honor even when they really didn't do anything um, at all. So what this does is it shapes exactly what we as a people are starting to think of is, as great, which is victimhood, passivity, uh, and uh, um, ex essentially expressing an identity. And if you don't recognize that identity, then you will be um, attacked, um, and then that person who was that person will then be elevated as being as being as being great.
You can contrast this with some names you might have heard of recently who have been assaulted or been, been attacked by the regime largely legally. Someone like Daniel Perry, who subdued someone on the subway in New York City. There's Kyle Rittenhouse, which is a little closer to home here. Uh, um, you probably know that story. Stories you may not know is a guy named James Skurlock. Uh, he was a bar owner who was, uh, in a, during a BLM rally, he went to the bar to protect the bar. Uh, after bricks were thrown into the windows of his bar, he and his father tried to push these people back or something to that effect, or just protect his bar. He was subsequently attacked, brought to the ground, but Skurlock had a gun, shot the, his attacker. Um, the investigator, the local investigator said that it was self-defense, but it made national news. And after that, uh, the district attorney came down, charged him with a federal crime. Um, a couple months later, Skurlock uh, committed suicide. Another man named uh, Jonathan Pentland, he was an NCO within the Army station at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. There was a deranged man who would come to his neighborhood who would then touch kids and um, walk and, and kind of walk. It would be very strange, have very strange erratic behavior. Uh, cops were called, nothing happens. And, he, and uh, finally, Jonathan Pentland, or Sergeant Pentland, said, enough is enough, and he kind of roughed the guy up a little bit. He was subsequently arrested, charged with assault, and, and convicted of assault, made national news. Uh, and the point being, why am I talking about these guys? These are people that in an earlier era would be praised for self-assertive individual action on behalf of their community, um, apart from the, maybe the lack of wisdom on Rittenhouse's fault. Nevertheless, the, the, the willingness to act on behalf of your community for its good when the authorities or others around you are not acting. So these are the kind of people who our regime are now, now attack, whereas the people who simply assert their identity in public are then praised. So this is the, I, I think this kind of highlights can actually the great men of old arise anymore? Or is that precluded? Is that completely out? And I think it, that's, that's kind of the first point I want to make, something to think about. Can someone like Washington actually rise up and become a great man in our future, given the current conditions? And I would say that is likely, at least it seems, that cannot um, happen. And perhaps that's something we need to think about and try to change. All right, so I want to kind of shift into uh, civil rulers, civil leaders. Again, civil leaders can be, can be great men. In particular, I want to talk about uh, two aspects of civil leadership. So there's obviously the lawmaking authority. They can tell you to do this or to not to do that. But there's more to it than that. When we want civil rulers, we also want someone who has this sort of persona and personality that inspires us uh, uh, for a love of country, um, and to act as well. So in a military leader, you don't just want some guy who's going to say, do this and do that. You want someone you can respect and someone you can follow almost by instinct um, from, that, from that respect. Uh, and there is this, within the Christian tradition, there is a lot of uh, not, not commentary on the importance of civil leaders, but also the, uh, around the office itself and the importance of, of the office as a sort of divine office. It's, some of the language you, you find is kind of striking. So let me read just some of what Calvin said. He said that, first of all, the, first of all I mean, you can look at Psalm 82.6. This is the, the, the common interpretation uh, where scripture calls princes gods, meaning, well, we'll get to that. But Calvin says it's a sacred title, it's a sacred character and title. 
Um, Samuel Rutherford says that civil rulers have a, uh, a, a resemblance of the king of heavens, being a little god, and so is above any one man. Calvin said, uh, when good magistrates rule, we see God, as it were, near us and governing us by means of those whom he hath appointed. He says, the image of, of God shines forth in them when they execute judgment and justice. Calvin even says that uh, the palaces of princes, so the, the houses, palaces, ought to resemble a sanctuary, for they occupy the dwelling place of God, which ought to be sacred to all. So some of this, uh, this, mainly in his commentaries, he says these things, and others. And you find this kind of language throughout the, not only the Reformed tradition, but also the Christian tradition. And uh, you can see this rooted not only in Psalm 82, uh, but also in Romans 13, the idea that the authority, they are God's deputy or minister or servant, um, also that the power comes from God. Uh, so, but there is something, to, something about the character um, of that office that is more than just, he's more than a man. Of course, he's not divinized. When we say, you're our president now, we're not divinizing him. We're not saying, infusing him with divineness or something, or divinity. Uh, we are, he, he holds a certain office. But holding a certain office, you also ought to live up to that office. Which means not only uh, just law, but also having the sort of virtue and piety that comes with that. Uh, and so I want to first start off with some of the personality traits that we might want to look for uh, or, or that a, a civil ruler would have and then go from there and, and talk about law. Um, so th some of this relates to what I said before. Like he, he, this, our civil rulers ought to kind of live up as the, like the first of the people. The idea that they are, uh, just like in the army we say that the, you always lead from the front. So the same, same way civil rulers, they ought to lead from the front in virtue, in honor, um, and in piety. Um, and in this sense, they ought to have some kind of gravitas. There's a reason in the military why when a commanding officer enters the room, everyone stands up and goes to attention. And he says, and the officer says, at ease, unless you're in trouble, then you get yelled at. Um, but uh, normally he'll just say, at ease. But why do you do that? Well, in that space, by recognizing, you're your, your recognizing his presence in that space and his, his authority, and it's giving him the honor due to him, given that, that uh, even if you don't like the officer, you still are supposed to do that, given the office that he holds. Um, these people, uh, these great men also ought to inspire greatness, a love of country, a love of place. Um, again, I, I will mention Washington's uh, um, farewell address where he does commend the people for their sacrifices in the war uh, and to bringing themselves. But now you must be great yourselves apart from, from me, um, Washington, your, your leader. Um, so there's another a quote from uh, John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was a, a Presbyterian minister and founding father, also the, one of the presidents of, of Princeton. He has a, a nice statue in Princeton that was just there a few days ago and took a picture of it and he's standing there looking around thinking what happened uh, to, to this place. Um, let me see. Uh, so he says, uh, he says, the magistrates ought to encourage piety um, by his own example. All right, so that, is that the only quote I had here? Well, okay, there it is. He ought to, that's good enough. He ought to encourage piety by his own example. So he ought to be, so this is a founding father saying that that's what civil rulers ought to, ought to do. Um, I think it's important to stress that these guys are not church ministers. 
So there is a difference, of course, I mean, we all know this, there's a difference between a civil magistrate and a church minister. Church minister, you could think of as someone who represents, uh, brings the things of the kingdom of God, uh, which is, you know, I don't want to get too theological, but it's, in a sense, it's, it's otherworldly, it's, uh, it's spiritual, and they, they are ministers of Christ as he is mediator of, of the um, of the, of the things of, of heavenly life. But a, a civil magistrate, he, he gets his power largely from God as, as creator. So he directs things of this world, the earthly things. And so his power is in a way more, more physical, more earthly, uh, more coercive. Um, it's more, as, uh, as John was talking, I, actually your talk does fit in a, in a way with what I said, what, uh, what I'm talking about. There is a certain sublime element to the great civil leader that uh, you can imagine if the president, even Joe Biden, okay, um, I don't want to bash Biden here, but even if Biden were to walk in today, there would be a sense in which this guy has, the holds the office of the president, the president's of, presidency of the United States. Um, and if it was, if it was a, a president that you respected a lot, that would probably even be intensified. Um, so there is, there's something about the physical aspect and then the power and coercion that he, the, uh, that he has. Uh, we, so the, the point being, I think, what I'm trying to get at is that the civil, we should, we should expect civil rulers to be, have this kind of sublime uh, warrior um, strength to, to him. Um, that we wouldn't necessarily want from a church minister. Church minister serves things through persuasion. He preaches, tries to persuade you, and he serves things, uh, serves the, uh, uh, the sacraments um, as well. A little bit different office, and we should not conflate the two, in, in my view. Um, now, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about a monarchy. So I've been accused of wanting a monarchy to, to be in the United States. That's not true. Um, I'm not against monarchy in principle or in itself. But I think that just like Washington, Washington, uh, he, he, uh, he was there when he contributed to the formation of our Constitution. And he abided by that Constitution and even set precedents that were held until we amended the Constitution with regard to term limits uh, for the presidency. So you can, even in a republic like ours, you can still have uh, great men who are leading us and, uh, and abide by the Constitution and have great effects upon um, our country. So, all right, that's, that, that's the personality side. So you've got to have great men of per personality. Now I want to get into civil law. So now put on your lawyer caps. You're all going to become lawyers by the end of this. Um, no, I'll try not to make it too, too dry here. All right. So civil rulers have lawmaking power. They, what is law? Law basically says do this or don't do that. That's kind of what law does at, at, at its most basic idea is do this or don't do that. And if you, uh, if you fail to do what I say, then you're going to be punished. Um, that's at, at kind of the most basic, probably simplistic reading of it. Um, but I think it, in order to understand how civil law works... We have to think what sort of being we are as, as human beings. So we, we are created uh, in a world that, in which there are laws of nature. Uh, and, and all beings, all creatures are in a way under a sort of law of nature. So you can think of a dog or a cow or these other animals. 
they don't have reason, they're not moral beings. When one animal kills another being, you don't, you don't accuse it of a moral error. You might think, well, that dog is a poorly trained dog. But you don't think in terms of that dog just committed a moral crime or something to that, that effect or violated a moral law. They're just following their instinct. The difference between us and, and, uh, and, like, uh, and, and non-human beings or, or is that we have we're under a moral law. We are under a law that, we, that is rational, meaning that we can know it, we can think, our, we can think about it if our minds were sound, we could think about it properly, and we have the will to choose or not choose. So animals, they have a kind of volition. Sometimes you can see a dog contemplating if it really wants to do this or that. Um, but we actually have, a, uh, a, we have the free choice to choose um, to obey the law or not obey the law. Um, I am Calvinist, but uh, we'll get that free choice thing another time. But, uh, but yeah, we, no, nevertheless, we do have, part of being under a moral law is that we have moral choice and we can do this or not do that. Um, we have a sense of justice. So we don't really think, when we watch a, a, um, a, uh, some sort of documentary on animals, we don't think, wow, that's an injustice that animal did. We don't think like that because we don't conceive of animals under a moral law. That's not true for us. We are under a moral law. This moral law is something that is natural to us, meaning that it's something that, uh, well, I'll, I'll go through the definition here, but it's, it's natural in the sense that it's, it's, not simply a, it's not simply what's written within the Bible. It's also uh, kind of created with us. I'll, I'll go into this in more detail in a moment. The point being is that it's, it's a natural thing. So he, he, there's a famous theologian, well, famous, there's a term, my, my famous, the, my, excuse me, my favorite theologian is a guy named Francis Turretin, and he said this about the natural law. He said, the natural law is founded on the natural right of God with, with regard to which things are not called just because they are commanded, but they are commanded because they were just and good antecedently to the command of God. Meaning that the, the reason we are ought to do this or ought not to do that uh, is not simply because God says it is good or it is bad, but because it actually is good or bad um, flowing from his very moral nature. And since he created us, um, we are moral beings in, in line with his moral nature. Okay, so it's not a pure divine command as if we ought to do these things simply because God says do or do not. Um, but he tells us to do this and don't do that because of the very moral nature that we have from being created by God who in himself is perfect, morally perfect. Okay, um, that, that's, that, that's really important because it means that when you obey the moral law or the natural law, you're actually obeying, you're being truly human. You're doing human actions. You're doing what you ought to do as a human being. Not sim you're not simply obeying God's command uh, you're actually also being just a good uh, human being um, in accordance with how God created you, okay? All right, but the thing is with natural law is that it's really a set of principles. It's not an actual set of uh, specific commands of saying you ought to do this or don't do that in a very specific sense. It's more like uh, natural um, principles, okay? So it's, it's like when, when you're commanded to honor your father and mother, that can look very different depending on what you're doing or how old you are. Um, the same thing is love your neighbor as yourself. That might, that might involve you putting your neighbor in jail. 
So, or it might not involve you putting your neighbor in jail. So you have to apply these, these principles in, uh, the con in context. Okay. Um, now this, because this law flows from God, this natural law flows from God, it is the only law that binds your conscience to action. So no one can tell you do this or don't do that um, unless they have actual license from God to do that. Okay? So the only thing that binds you to act, the only one who binds you to action ultimately is God. Okay. Now how does that relate to a civil ruler? Or how does it relate to, uh, I mean you talk about family life, but let's just go to an actual civil ruler. Where does the power of a civil ruler come from? or the civil magistrate, or the king, or uh, civil government, where does that power come from? It comes from God. That's ex precisely what Romans 13, 1 says. There is no authority except from God. Okay. So when a civil ruler says, you ought to do this, he establishes something in law, and if that law is in conformity to the natural law, which is the you know, overarching moral principles you ought to follow in life, then in a way, that is God telling you you ought to do that thing. Because you have, God's authority is invested with a certain man who is a civil ruler. That civil ruler is telling you to do something in accordance with the, the natural law that God has put you under. And therefore, in a way, in a kind of immediate or intermediary way, that civil ruler is um, uh, acting in a way as God to tell you to do something and he has every authority and right to do that. Okay. Um, now that's not to say I'm not going to go into uh, in, injustice, uh, unjust laws, uh, but you're not, I'll just say that you're not bound to obey unjust laws. And why is that? Because as I said before, no one can tell you to do something unless God has already told you to do it. Okay? Um, and uh, if, if, they, if they are commanding you to do something unjust, they're commanding you to do something outside of God's uh, natural law um, that, over which he's placed you. And that's why you don't have to obey it. Um, because that, that's why a civil ruler with power telling you to do something that is unjust, you do not have to obey him because he's actually not exercising the power of God properly. Um, okay. Um, so to, to kind of recap all this, you have, a, you have a natural law placed over you by God from the beginning. That natural law is directed for your good, but it's really a set of principles. Uh, and this is one reason why we have a civil leader, and the civil leaders take those principles and say, do this or don't do that for our good. And they do that with a power of God, as Romans 13.1 says, uh, as ministers of God, to tell you to do this or don't do that you know, through civil law. And in a way, those, those laws are laws of God, because his rightful representative is telling you to do um, this or that. And that's one reason why I think in Romans 13, Paul says, for conscience sake, you are bound to obey God. Here's God's minister. He's telling you to do something. Now obey for conscience sake um, because uh, he is, he's the minister of God. I think what this means then is we, ha we should have a, we should have a kind of uh, deferential posture. I know Americans don't like this, but I think we should have a, a sort of deferential posture towards civil leaders uh, when, they, when they tell us to do something through law or some other means. We should assume that they have the common good uh, in view. Now I'm not saying absolutely. I think, it, so during COVID, I know that was very controversial, uh, but uh, 
eventually, I think us regular people, you know, will will see that this law is dumb and doesn't work or it's destructive. And I think there can be a, a point where we start disobeying, um, or if can, uh, worship is canceled, but you know, you can still go to bars or something like that. When there's clear inconsistencies, we can disobey. And I don't want to get into all the disobedience aspect, but. Um, but the point is, I do think we should have a deferential posture as these people who do have legitimate authority and ought to um, ought to be in a better position to decide the the sort of laws we ought to obey. Um, that's, so I'm not I'm not trying to violate a good American principle of defiance uh, and civil disobedience. Um, so there still is that I think theoretically we could do that. But at the same time, we shouldn't have such a, a anti-authoritarian posture. I've kind of done an overview here of what I see as, this, as civil rulers having this kind of twin or twofold aspect to them, which is both the ability to direct via law, um, which is a more direct way. It's a it's a direct uh, way of saying um, what you ought to do and what we ought to do. But that's not enough. It's not enough to be like a Paul Ryan or a policy wonk who it doesn't inspire greatness in any respect, um, but uh, can only give you uh, laws. There has to be more than that. Also, a sort of personality that directs you um, to greatness and has a, a, a legacy um, to that end. All right. All right, so those are the two aspects. So I want to do a little bit of application now. Uh, if you let me, uh, we have, of course, mixed government, meaning we don't have a, this, what I'm talking about might make more sense if we have kind of a unitary executive like a monarchy. Of course, we don't have a monarchy. Uh, we have a government that is a, kind of a mixed regime, of course, three branches, three, just three separate powers, each one lodged in a different branch of government. Uh, and so it's a... Uh, uh, this power of God is kind of, in a way, diffused, in, in a way. So, like, so which personality do we respect? Um, uh, or do we, do we look for? Is, can the great man be a congressman? So I think, I think yes. So it can, be, it can come from anywhere, any branch of government. But ideally, it would be the president. I mean, the, the president is the head of state. He is the executive. He doesn't have any lawmaking power, but he is the executor of the laws. That's the whole point of the presidency and also... As a, but, but also a head of state in relation to other nations. And so I think th this is one of the, the as, as Christians, as just human beings, we should seek a president that is, um, can have that sort of national greatness that we look for and need. Now in recent years, we haven't exactly had that. Uh, I'm not gonna go Trump bashing, I wouldn't do that anyway. But uh, and there, there can be there can be times when we have to violate that in the interest of uh, for other interests. Nevertheless, as we train our children, as we look for, you know, God to raise up someone uh, for us, uh, we should we should look look to those kind of qualities. I think, and I think as we're looking for God to do that for us, I think as Americans we need to look we need to remind ourselves that we do in this country have a heritage of faith. As much as we like, we hear people say, we're not a Christian country, we never were a Christian country, the, the Constitution is godless, that really were, uh, the founders established a secular government, we're more like the French than we thought, um, that's all false. And uh, we, the, uh, I would say, I mean, we don't have to go to the Puritans, we don't have to even go to the founding era, we could just go 
We can go on the 1800s all the way up through maybe the 1950s and 1960s. And Americans thought of this country as a Christian nation. Uh, you had foreigners come here, like Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote the famous book, Democracy in America. You may have read that in high school or college. Um, and he even said, yeah, I mean, of course, this is a Protestant Christian country. It's like the, uh, it, it, he contrasted it with the, the, the established churches in England in, or in, in, the, in Europe. And he said, well, it's, it's remarkable. In the United States, there's no established churches or they're, you know, at the very, you know, limited establishment in some states. Uh, practically, practically not, not a stud, practically disestablished. But the religiosity in the United States is off the charts. So there's no established churches, religiosity off the charts. Everyone, to the point where if you were not a Christian, you had to kind of keep that to yourself. Uh, and so it was a very, it was a very Christian, and even into the progressive era, so you, we think of like the progressives of the early like 20th century um, as being maybe secularist. No, they were all liberal Protestants, and, a, and they applied a kind of uh, a theology or an eschatology uh, that placed a lot of hope as the United States as a world leader for justice and progress. Now, I don't think many people here would agree with what they thought was progress and other things and really wouldn't want to think of the United States that way. Nevertheless, they said, we're a Christian country and we ought to be like that to the rest of the world. So that was even among the, so it wasn't until after World War II. The point being is we have a heritage of faith and I think we can, uh, I, I do not, for the record, don't, don't think that we are like God's chosen people or God's chosen country or any of that sort of thing. Nevertheless, we, among other nations, I think England is also one of them. You can think of Germany and France as well as having this kind of heritage of faith. I do believe that it's possible God can raise up a leader for us that would remind us of that heritage and see how we can recover um, through custom and, and law, um, that, that heritage. So I think that's something we should look to and pray, uh, pray for. We should prepare for that as well. I think that, that involves education. It involves teaching our kids and reminding ourselves of that. Um, so well-educated children, uh, kind of training up that next generation. And uh, you see a lot, of, a lot of hope within some of the, the, the education, the classical school education, all this sort of thing. You, you, see, you see hope in that. Yeah. yeah, and I would just say another thing with, with kids and ourselves, biographies of, of the great uh, men of the past. I think that, that's also a, a means of inspiring. It used to be that's what biography was. You read Plutarch's lives, and what was it but a, a analysis of great men of the past, their faults, their, their triumphs. Uh, there was a comparison between the different ones. Even uh, Machiavelli's famous uh, infamous uh, book, The Prince, was intended as a type of, type of manual for civil power. For, and he cites all these men of the Roman and Greek, ancient Greek period to try to talk about. So there used to be that biography used to be a, um, a, a, a way to think through greatness and faults and try to um, raise up similar people. Okay. Uh, I, I said that civil rulers have the means through law to direct us to what is good. I don't think it's just to ensure that we can be individuals and do whatever we want without harming each other. 
So I'm not a libertarian. I think the point of civil rulers is to say, what is good? So let's try to enact and, and, and uh, encourage people to that end. Of course, we're Americans and don't like too much of that. But I think as American conservatives, I'm assuming most people here are, we ought to start, start, I think, becoming more comfortable with using power for the good of the country, to see what is evil and that evil ought to be um, in some way suppressed, uh, if not uh, eradicated. Of course, we have to have wise policy, but we don't want a negative vision by which a neg negative vision would, uh, would not be pessimism. But this idea that, uh, well, we, we, we should not use, we should use law just to secure individual freedom to be and do whatever they want. I think there should be a positive vision. We should have a positive conception of what is good in the country, and we should seek through custom and law to bring that about. Uh, for a long time, we've lived in a sort of neutral, positive or neutral world with regard to uh, America's relationship to Christianity, and that's trained us to think a certain way. And I think within our world now, now that there's more hostility, outright hostility to Christianity and just basic human morals, uh, we ought to have a more positive vision, meaning implement policy that actually conduces to that end. So what's an example of this? I, I, when, where possible, I think the government should stamp out all LGBTQ stuff within public schools. Um, now, when I say that, I mean that they, they should not encourage any of that stuff as teachers. And if they do, they're subject to fi being fired. But what well, I'm not saying, and this is the conservative, the conservative instinct is to say, well, when we say they shouldn't talk about that stuff in schools, we mean that no one should talk about their personal lives at all. That's the conservative is let's neutralize. Let's, let's, let's make it neutral so no one can do it at all. When I grew up, and I grew up in California, so thanks for your hospitality, but I grew up in California um, and even then, I remember teachers saying, talking positively about their, you know, there wasn't all this, this 80s and 90s, and um, I, I don't recall any, any teachers talking about their, you know, lesbian relationships, um, but they did talk positively about their family, and th that was good, that was a good thing. So I think that we, sh conservatives should not say, let's leap into neutrality world where, you know, you can't talk about your family life at all. No, it should be, if you're going to talk about your family life, it ought to be a some, some, something about your, your husband and, or wife and your kids and what, what you did over the summer. Uh, and uh, so in other words, what is the good? The good is heterosexual marriage with children. Um, that ought to be the standard thing that you talk in, in class. Uh, so the, the next one would be uh, religious exemptions. One of, the, one of the strange things about us is that we think, oh, the First Amendment, what that does it means that we have exemptions. We, we, we claim our religious rights to be exempted from some norm or law. So when LGBTQ or whatever, um, I don't know, all these things are, are normalized in society, instead of us saying no, we need to say no, that's just simply wrong and shouldn't happen, we ask for religious exemptions. So essentially we, we concede to the people who want to normalize deviancy and then our response, instead of instead of fighting against the, the normalcy, we seek an exemption. Uh, the, one striking, like during Obamacare, when they wanted to force Roman Catholics to have contraception or to provide contraception, initially, as I understand it, the, the, they were, the, the Roman Catholic organizations were opposed to the law 
in, in its entirety, or at least that specific provision that would require providing contraception through, uh, through their, the, the, um, the health care plans. And then someone said, oh, well, we'll provide a religious exemption. And then all of a sudden, the Roman Catholics, many of them changed their view and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll accept it if there's an exemption. And so that became the law, and now I forget all the details of that. But the, the point being is that they were granted an exemption. I think there still was a court battle over it. But nevertheless, there was a promise of an exemption. Uh, and, and, as I, and as I understand it, the law passed by one vote in the Senate, and that was because the exemption was, was accepted. So that would not have actually passed, as I understand it, um, if uh, they not not accept the exemption. Um, I'm not saying religious exemptions are bad all the time. I'm not saying that sometimes it's a tactical, uh, a tactical strategic maneuver to guarantee our, our, uh, our right to kind of live out our beliefs without um, being harassed. But we shouldn't be addicted to exemptions. We should seek what is normal, what is right. That ought to be the norm. And, uh, and so that, that's my main point there. Um, so lastly... I already mentioned this before, and I'm kind of running out of time, but I think we need to, we need to pray for God to raise up a figure and I, or people or a movement that will deliver us from the evils that we see in this country. In a way to return uh, to, an old, to older ages, not entirely, of course, but to but return to the heritage of faith, that heritage of faith we have uh, in the United States and I, th I think a key element of that is going to be, it's going to be God's providence, but using uh, these great people who will direct us uh, to it. And it will be, it'll be a process of remembrance, not just an innovative new thing. It will be a process of remembrance. So uh, hopefully we can, we, can, uh, you all, we can pray for that. So thank you. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.